I brought a prop this morning. Yeah, isn't that cool? I've had this for years and I love it. It's just, I keep it on my desk. Um, we're going to be in the part in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that talks about the Word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword. What happened back in history is the Romans, prior to conquering Israel, they were you know, out to reconquer a lot of the land that Alexander the Great had had back. I'm not going to get off into the weeds on world history, but but they were known for their big, broad swords. Uh, they had uh, plenty of them, and they would use them when they were on horseback, and you've probably seen the movies where they got this big, long sword dangling from their sides. And they went to war with uh, Spain, and or the land that is now Spain, and lost miserably. They noted, and this is a couple hundred years B.C., they noted that the Spaniards had these little dinky swords, like daggers. And what they did uh, was they had these swords that were sharp on both sides and pointy. And they realized that with their big broad swords in, in... in hand-to-hand combat that they couldn't get in close enough to do a good job. And they really, they literally got slaughtered. There were tens of thousands of Roman soldiers died. And in, in the advancement of military warfare, they decided, you know what? We need a, we need a better tool. We need a better weapon. And that's when they came up with something that looked like this. And what it is, is a sword that's been sharpened on both sides so that no matter how the person would use it, it was sharp, and it would cut. But not only that, they came up with a sword that was unlike the blunted ends of the swords that they had. They had a sword that was so sharp and pointy at the end and tapered like this, similar, that they could pierce armor with it and go right in to the core of a person and do the damage that they wanted to do in hand-to-hand combat. So they adapted this. It was called the machaira. Uh, that's the Greek word in the Bible. We'll see that this morning. It's the Greek word that's used for sword. But the Roman army adapted it, and what they called it was a gladius. And, yeah, it's what the gladiators used. It was a, probably a little longer than this. For lack of room, I didn't get a longer one when I bought one because I was just fascinated by these little... Two-edged swords. This is a dagger. But the word machaira means uh, literally uh, small sword or large knife. And that's about what this is. So I thought I'd have a little show and tell this morning so that I could give you guys an idea. As we get into this passage in God's Word, that we're looking at the metaphor of a machaira, a small two-edged sword, for the Word of God. Uh, as you may notice that on the screen, I don't have a back screen today. Huh. All right. Things short out. These, the media guys do a great job. And it's like, now I've gotten so used to it, I look at the back screen and I don't see anything. Anyway, but you'll see on the slide, the, the sword of the spirit. That's not mentioned here. It's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, where the apostle Paul, uh, in his exhortation to the church at Ephesus, is telling them to put on the full armor of God. And there's this all of this armament, and I'm not going to teach through that this morning. We'll cover it another time. But all of the armament is defensive, except one piece. And Paul would know what was commonly used to 
pierce the armor of a foe. And that's why he calls the sword of the spirit the word of God, because it's the only offensive weapon in the armament. And we don't beat people up and slice at people and all of that. I mean, there's a point where the metaphor falls apart. (laughs) But the truth of it is, is that this is the effect of the word of God on the human heart. It not only cuts, it pierces. And we're going to look at that this morning as we go along. So uh, it's not the heavy infantry. They use a, a sword called the spatha, and that's the big Roman broadsword. This is a, we're talking about the gladius here, and it's the same as the machaira. That very similar to the sword that Peter used, and, and it, they could be one or two sided. And when Peter cut off Malchus's ear, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was a little small personal sword that he shouldn't have had. But I'm not going to go there. So as we're looking at this, we're, we're seeing that we're going to only cover three verses this morning, verses 11 through 13, uh, and then we're going to come back and we're going to unpack it a lot. There's just so much here. This is, I'll tell you what, Hebrews 4.12 is a great memory verse. If you don't have it underlined, I recommend that you do, because it is a, a central passage to understanding God's word and its effect on us. So uh, I'll read through it, verse 11 Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Machaira, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Talked about the warnings in this book. This is this passage ends the third warning. Uh, failure to enter in. Failure to enter his rest. We looked at the uh, the first two warnings prior, uh, the danger of drifting and, and to, to not drift away. And then we looked at Failure to enter his rest, and now uh, failure to, uh, to uh, actually, it, it's the, the danger of falling short of God's provision, of God's instruction, of God's exhortation, of the things that he puts forth in this letter. And so in context, we're going to go back, we're going to look at, at chapter 4, verse 2, uh, because we want to pick up uh, in this, when we look at verse 11, let's He says, I don't want anybody to fall short according to the same example of disobedience. What is that? Uh, Remember last week we looked at us and them. When we looked at Israel, us being the New Testament Hebrew believers in the first century who were struggling to hold on to their faith because they had mounting pressures, and we've talked about that a lot. Uh, But the them being Israel coming out of Egypt into the promised land, but balking when they got to the border and not entering in, not entering God's promises for them. It was their disobedience, the sin of unbelief that prevented them from being able to go in and to take the land. And so the writer is saying, look, they died as a result. This is not lightweight stuff. This is serious stuff. So for those of us who believe, we can fail to enter his rest. We can fail to appropriate the promises of God in our lives and be kind of miserable. For those who have not yet come to faith, the consequences are absolutely severe. And that's why this warning, he says, don't fall according to the same example 
that they did. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard didn't profit them, not being mixed or united with faith in those who heard it. So as we go through, in, in chapter 3, verse 12, he talks about having an evil heart of unbelief. And typically, I mean, we as Christians, sometimes we, I think we over-soften the message. So I think, well, unbelief, that's not an evil. Yeah, it is. That's what he calls it. Because an, the unbelief in my life stems from my flesh. It stems from the unregenerate man. It stems from the old nature. And what he wants to do is to give us a new nature. And once he has, he wants us to walk in that and not in unbelief. Because walking in unbelief is walking according to the flesh. And he says, walk by the Spirit. You won't fulfill the desires, the lusts, the, the things of the flesh. So as we look at this, uh, we look at back, remember in chapter 3, he begins talking about Moses. And, and he says, look, here was Moses. He was faithful in his house, but Jesus built the house. Remember that? We talked about that. And so he's saying Jesus is better than Moses. And then he goes from there into what happens when we decide that we're going to have a hard heart. We don't actually get up in the morning and say, I think I'll have a hard heart today towards God. But it happens. And it happens when we dis- when, when we're challenged, when the cares of this world come in, when things come up and we're not willing to trust God. We looked at that. We looked at the remedy for a hard heart a couple of weeks ago. The remedy simply being trust. You don't know. We don't know, folks. We go through things. We all go through things. You may be going through things this morning. And if you're not, you're either coming out of something or you're about to go into something because that's part of this life. We go through trials. And we I, we always have the option. Am I going to trust God for this thing? Am I going to simply rest in his promises? Am I going to understand that he's got it? Or am I going to struggle? Am I going to allow unbelief to come in? Again, talked about that. Unbelief has two components. It's One is not believing what God has said. Two is making up a story about it and believing the lie. And we looked at historically, that's what Israel had done. They had done that over and over and over again. If you look through the whole Old Testament, you see when Israel rebels, They're not only disbelieving God and his promises, his provision, but they're actually believing the lie all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We see that that's what happened uh, with Eve and on forward. It's part of what happens with this. On one side, we have the spirit. On the other side, we have the flesh. And that's why we are exhorted over and over and over again to walk by the spirit. Because if we do that by default, we're not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. So uh, when he talks about this, this us and they and them, when he talks about the gospel preached, again, by recap, by way of recap, we talked about that. The gospel for them, the good news, that's what gospel means, was that they would go into a physical land of rest. And and that was the promise. And that's what Israel failed to do. And everybody over 20 years old died out in the wilderness. They didn't inherit the promise. And so uh, when he's talking about the gospel for us, there's a whole different connotation. It's not a physical rest. It's a spiritual rest. It's the rest that comes from giving my life to Christ and now resting in him, resting in his promises, resting in his provision, resting in his presence in my life through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Far greater rest. We looked at back then, 
And in verses 3 through 10 in this chapter, uh, again, I, I want to build on this because we're catching this in the middle of this third warning, the fail to enter in, the fail to appropriate his rest. And so what we're looking at here in verses 3 through 10 uh, is that he's giving us rest. And he goes back, remember, he goes all the way back to Adam. He talks about God resting on the seventh day. And, and, and that he goes forward from there, he talks about, Moses and the children of Israel going and getting to the edge of the land and failing to enter his rest. He goes from there to Joshua, and he says, now Joshua was the one who actually did lead Israel into the land of promise, the promised land. But he says there remains a rest for the people of God. How do we know that? He talks about David in Psalm 95. He keeps moving up through history. And he says, now, David would not have spoken of another day after that if Joshua was the end of the line as far as God's rest goes. So he does that, and then he brings it home to the Hebrew believers of the first century and says, look, this applies to you. There is a rest, a supernatural Holy Spirit-empowered rest that you can enter into, and it's appropriated by faith. Simply believing God, trusting. I like to interchange the word faith with trust because faith, it sounds, it, it almost gets kind of a weak connotation to it. But truly, when I'm walking in faith, I am walking trusting God. And the hard part, guys, for me, and I would imagine for you, is trusting when I don't see the end of it. I'm kind of a control kind of guy, and, and maybe it speaks to you, maybe it doesn't. I like to have everything ordered. I like everything, all, all of the boxes checked, all of my ducks in a row, however you want to characterize it. I like to see it. I like to see the end of the thing. And when I don't, I get a little bit undone. There are certain of you smiling. I think that you understand. But it's, it's, it, it, it's unnerving to me, and it's a challenge for me. We all have our faith tested. We all are challenged. And what he's saying is rest, trust. And, and, and you know, he brought it up from Adam all the way through. We look through the whole Old Testament into these Hebrew believers in the first century, and it does come home by application. It comes home to us. It's God's revealed will that we enter his rest. We are not called. Listen, he talks about a seventh day back then. They challenged Jesus. Remember when he was going around, he's plucking grains of wheat on the Sabbath and all that. They challenged Jesus. And he said, look, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And I, by the way, am the Lord of the Sabbath. What does he mean by that? He invented it. And his will for us, church, is not a Sabbath day. Yeah, it's wisdom to rest, to, to, to take a time for recreation or to take time to recharge and all of that. I'm not, I don't have issue with that at all, but we're not called to a Sabbath day. Sunday is not the new Sabbath. We're called to a Sabbath life. It's a life of rest. Rest in what? The promises of God. How do we get there? Through the word of God. That's why he's including that in this passage. Verse 11, he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that restless. Anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This is a verse where we ended last week, but in order again to, to catch the flow, the context of this week with what we're looking at, I wanted to begin actually there. Uh, and, and again, the contrast is between us and them. Let us, let us enter this rest and not 
fall according to the same example of disobedience. They disobeyed. God said, go in. They said, no, no, no. They're giants. They're, no, there's too many challenges. We're not going to do it. He said, essentially, fine. You want it that way? You can have it that way. You will not enjoy the abundance that it's my will to provide. We can fall into the same kind of thing. It's not a promised land, but it's a place of rest. It's a place of being able to rest. Remember we talked about the definition of rest last week? It's By definition, it's letting the weight of my life, challenges, issues, perhaps health, perhaps finances, perhaps family, relationships, whatever it is, letting the weight of my life, letting the full weight of my life down on Jesus. That's what rest is. And again, it's not accomplished on one day a week. It's an attitude of the heart. That's God's will for us to enter into and then to simply rest in him. So what he does here is is he's going along, he lays out this whole principle, and when he says, let us therefore, in verse 11, he's saying, now let's apply this. Folks, we can read our Bibles every day, we can study like crazy, we can, we can be at every service at the church, we can do all of the stuff, but if we don't take time to say, Lord, what does that have to do with me? How does that apply to my life? How does that work with my circumstances. If we're not coming to a place of doing that, we're not going to enter into his rest. He deliberately, when he says, let us therefore, in verse 11, and he says it again further in the chapter. We'll look at it next week. When he says, let us therefore, he's saying, now that we've talked about this thing called rest, the rest that God offers, let's do it. A friend who's a pastor in Southern California, when he'd have couples come into his office, he'd ask them two questions. <laughs> this couple would be, uh, they'd come in and, and perhaps they're having some issues and, and he'd say, well, are you reading your Bible? Oh yeah, pastor, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're reading our Bible, yeah. And then he would simply say, are you doing it? Well, and usually it was kind of squirmy at that point because if they were doing it, they probably wouldn't be there. But the point is, it's a very simple formula. It's a simple recipe for us to be able to, and it's just, it has to do with letting the weight of my life down on him. So as he applies this, you know, I thought about this. He says, let's be diligent to enter the rest. Again, talked about it last week, but just something that came to me. I think I shared with you guys one time about getting lost in the woods on a hunting trip. I went on this hunting trip, and these guys, I found out after I got there, and I didn't have any transportation, that it was a poaching camp. And, and so I decided, I really don't want to be here when the cops show up and Fish and Game comes and puts all these guys in prison. And, you know, I was a, just a brand new Christian and it was like, oh, I guess I'm hunting by myself this week. I literally pulled my sleeping bag outside the camp. I'm thinking Israel, right? It's just like, I'm outside the camp. And I pulled my sleeping bag outside the camp and I went hunting by myself. Well, this one day I went hunting and I went up, I got caught up reading a book. Uh, and, and you know how hours can fly by when you're reading. There's no kind of time consciousness with that. And, and I looked up and the sun was almost set and all of the shadows had changed and I was lost. So I promptly got up and I, I know how to get out of here. And I walked down the wrong side of the mountain out in the middle of nowhere in Southern Oregon. It got dark. And, I mean, I couldn't even hear the generators from the camp. 
and I'm wandering around. Then it started to rain. And I think I mentioned I, I tore the pages out of my book and started a little fire because I was getting cold and I was bummed about that because I wasn't finished with the book. And, 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 and I thought, you know, I've got to find a road. And so I, I hiked until I found a road. And then I went down until I found another road. And I thought, this is perfect. That just doubled my chances of being found. And so what I was doing is I wanted to rest, but I was working to enter that rest. That's the idea here. I was working hard at getting found. I was working hard at getting to a place where I could relax because I wasn't going to relax. There are big animals out there. And I'm hearing stuff in the bushes and it's like, this is creepy. You know, there's, yeah, I'm not on the top of the food chain. You know, all that stuff's going through my mind. And I'm a big guy. The guy said, as a matter of fact, when I, I saw headlights coming down this road and I went out, I had a, um, what do you call it, a poncho on. And I, I went out in the middle of this road, and I'm waving my hands like this, and this poncho hangs straight down. And the guy said, you look just like a ghost out there with this poncho hopping around. He says, there is no way in the world we could have missed you. So I went back to the camp and uh, pulled my sleeping bag outside and went to bed. So, But the, the, the thing is, is, he says, be diligent to enter that rest. In other words, you might have to work at it. You might wrestle. It, there might be things for you to do. He's, this isn't a work strip. It's not legalistic. This is just common sense. And you know, there's times where I have to take things to the Lord, and there are times, and I, I'll, I've shared with other people in this body, I might have to take something to the Lord 50 times in a day when I'm wrestling. I know the right thing in my knower, but if it hasn't made that transition and I'm having trouble applying it to my life, I might have to work to enter his rest. That's the idea. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Machaira, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, from again, from chapter 3, verse 1, the writer is strongly exhorting all the way through here. He talks about the danger of a hard heart. And now what he's giving sort of is the recipe. What he's giving is this is how the word does profit. You remember, we, I went back to verse 2. Is, is The word they heard didn't profit them. It was not mixed with faith. It wasn't united with faith in those who heard. So now what he's done, he's worked through this whole deal where he's talked about what happens with hardness of heart. He's talked about what happens when you fail to enter his rest as a result of hardness of heart. How do you... What happens if you don't enter his rest? Well, it's because you have a hard heart. Why do you have a hard heart? Well, because it says in chapter 2, because you're drifting. You see how this is all hooked together. He's making a very sequential, logical argument. Beautiful theology in this. Wonderful literature. It's all hooked together. We've talked about the word therefore being all over the place in this. In the book of Hebrews, the word therefore, I think it's 13 times. Because he's building a case. Don't harden your heart. Why? Because you're not going to enter his rest. And if you're hardening your heart, it's probably because you're drifting from the truth that's found in Christ. And you're not going to have peace. You're not going to have rest in your life. So in Hebrews 4.12, the writer explains why this word of exhortation and warning is effective and why we, church, need to heed that warning. Yes, there's a warning for unbelievers. Don't fall. That could turn into apostasy in your life. 
But there also was a practical application to the church to understand the mechanism, the workings of the word of God, the words of God in our lives, in our hearts. Verse 12 gives tremendous insights regarding the word of God. I'm going to break it down. I'll look at seven things here as we go through this morning. First is it is the word of God, period. It's not the word of man. In 1 Timothy 3.16, the first part of that says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word there for inspiration, it's the word where we get pneuma or pneumatic. It's, it's, it's God breathed. It's given by inspiration. God breathed on these men who wrote down what they wrote. Um, the, the, there's a technical doctrine, and, and you can thrill your friends with it if you want, called the Doctrine of Verbal Plenary Inspiration. I, when I was, I taught Sunday school for about 10 years, and, and, and mom and, and what, it, what verbal plenary inspiration means, it means that the Bible, the Word of God, was inspired by God. And that He breathed on these guys and inspired them to write. That's why it's called the Word of God. And so, you know, mom or dad would come up and ask me how little Jimmy was in Sunday school. And what did we, what did we talk about today? And I, and I usually I would look at it real serious. I say, we went through the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. And they would like, kind of like, you know, the dog tipping his head is like, what? And I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We, you know, we talked about whatever it was, but truly that's a very important doctrine to understand. This isn't made up stuff. This isn't stuff that it's just kind of gotten twisted over the centuries. No, there are tens of thousands of fragments of manuscripts that go to make this up, that they overlay each other perfectly. And when you hold it up, there's veracity. There's, there, there's teeth in this. It is the word of God. He is big enough to ensure its accurate transmission down through the ages. We believe it to be the inspired, inerrant word of God. You can bank on it. And, and, and folks, this isn't, you know, you ever think about it in terms of, okay, like I get up on Sunday morning and I go down to this building and I hear this guy talk about a book. No, it's a lot more than that. I mean, yeah, it's sort of on the face of it. You could look at that and go, wow, that just doesn't make, yeah. And if you take the spiritual aspect out of it, that's what we're doing. But folks, it's a whole lot more than a book club. I mean, these words are life. Uh, and, and so it's absolutely the word of God. It is absolutely God-breathed. And you can bank on that. The second thing here is the word is truly living. It's his living word. It's not just a book. The Bible stands alone in all of literature. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus himself says, It is the spirit who gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Here's something that Charles Spurgeon had to say, talking about the word of God. He says, the book has wrestled with me. The book has smitten me. The book has comforted me. The book has smiled upon me. The book has frowned on me. The book has clasped my hand. The book has warmed my heart. The book weeps with me and sings with me and it whispers to me and it preaches to me. It maps my way and holds up my goings. It is the young man's best companion and is still my morning and evening chaplain. Isn't that good? 
That's the effect of the word of God on a, on a fertile heart, on a heart that's open. Uh, we've talked about the parable of the sower there in Luke chapter 8, where he sows the seed, which is the word of God. And he's sowing it onto different types of hearts. The fertile heart, the one, the heart that I want is, Lord, that, that those seeds hit, they don't stay on the surface, they take root. And when they take root, they bring life. First Peter chapter one, uh, Peter says this, he says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Then he quotes Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Nothing's getting out of here, folks. Nothing's getting off this planet except for two things, your soul and the word of God. So how is it living? Uh, Peter, again, Peter talks about how this word is alive. He says in verse uh, 21 of chapter 1 in Second Peter, no prophecy, speaking forth, it was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. That's why it became God's written word. Third thing we look at is, the, is he says the word is powerful or active. It depends on the translation you're at, you're in. The Greek word, though, is energio, and it doesn't take rocket science to understand why that Greek word is used. It's where we get energy. And what it is is the effective causing of something to happen. In other words, the word is active, It when it goes into us, it brings about, as we're willing to apply it, it brings about things that change us. They're, that's why we're transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And, and so, uh, first with conversion, absolutely. I mean, if this energy of God that is working through His Word does not come about, no, no one would ever get saved. No one would ever be converted to Christ. But also for our growth. As we study God's word, as we look at it, you know, as you read the Bible sometimes where the things just jump off the page and there's this yes inside of you in your heart. There's this affirmation, this confirmation. That's a word for me. That's the working of the word. It's the living aspect of the word of God. It's the active working of the word in your soul, in your spirit. Heed that. That's by design. It's something that God does. The word is active in another way as well. It accomplishes things. It's dangerous and promising. Jesus spoke Lazarus back to life. Remember that? We looked at that in the Gospel of John. He spoke death to the fig tree. He spoke the universe into existence. He makes the point is this. He makes things happen by speaking. And when he writes that down, it's called the word of God. So this is all about God speaking. And, and in its written form, it is the written word of God. Now, I want to be careful here. We're not talking about ex cathedra. I mean, there are groups out there that add continuing revelation on top of the canon, the closedness of scripture. And that's not good. It leaves things open for anything goes. There's a lot of false doctrine flying around out there, and we'll teach against it. 
because it's dangerous. It has to be on the basis of God's word as it's been transmitted to us. He didn't make a mistake and say, well, I'm now I'm going to, in the 21st century, start adding to it. Don't fall for that. The point also is that when that word of God, when it becomes rooted into a human soul, it, it brings life. It imparts life. Uh, it's both living and active. It's not one or the other, folks. They're joined together on purpose here. The Word of God is alive. It's not living just so that we can go, wow, look at the Word of God. It's alive. No, it's living and active. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We participate with the work of the Holy Spirit and allow the activity of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to have an effect in our lives, in our hearts. The next thing we look at here is the word of God is cutting. Uh, like with this dagger that I showed you, both sides are sharp. There is no, there's no blunt edge. It, it's, it's sharp on both sides. It's sharp all around. Uh, again, for in warfare, it was a great advantage because the guy didn't have to turn his blade a certain way to have the effect he wanted it to have. He could just swing. And if it contacted, it was going to cut. Similarly, that's how the Word of God is in our lives. It is sharp. It cuts. And there are times I've kind of tongue-in-cheek joked with you guys before that sometimes when I'm study, studying, I, I've confessed to you, man, there was blood all over my office because the Word of God just cuts. And there are times where the Holy Spirit brings conviction over an area of my life. And, and when I, when I prepare, guys, I don't just do this to do a book report. I do this because I want to be the first partaker. I want for God to work in my heart. I want Him to show me these things experientially. And sometimes that's tough. Why? Because the Word of God cuts. It slices through to the core of the matter. And when He brings conviction, it's a good thing. Because Part, he doesn't just leave us bleeding. He brings it for healing. He does it for surgery. He does it to cut things out so that there could be something beautiful in its place. That's the God we serve. You know, I, I was, I was learning at one time. I, I really like lapidary work, rocks. <laughs> and, and I was learning at one time to, uh, nap obsidian. Now, napping is like, if you see an, uh, an obsidian arrowhead, you know, it has the, the deal. And, and I was learning to do that. Uh, I was in a, a rock club and, and they had all the equipment down at the shop. And so I was going down there and I was learning all about it, what a conchoidal fracture is. You, you don't have to remember this really doesn't have anything to do with this morning, but it was fun. Um, but it, it's, there's no grain in obsidian. It's volcanic glass. And so there's nothing that will affect it. And if you learn to hit it a certain angle with a certain amount of pressure, you can absolutely predict the fracture that'll come. And a conchoidal fracture, it's like a, a divot will fly off of that. That's why if you see somebody that does a really good job making arrowheads, that it's a perfect pattern. Those are conchoidal fractures. Obsidian is a very interesting material. When I was working obsidian, I would get to a certain point, and I'm not kidding, I... I would be working along and I would realize, oh, I'm bleeding all over the place. Obsidian is, I think, arguably the sharpest material known to man. 
When you fracture obsidian, it will fracture down to three billionths of an inch thick. And it is so sharp that it will pass through skin and you don't feel it until your nerve endings start to scream. I mean, it is that sharp. And, and what he's saying here is the word of God is so sharp, it will cut. And if you're paying attention to the work that God wants to do in your own life, in your own heart, let it cut. It's not a bad thing. It's not cutting you to death. He's not, in a way that's true because he wants to, to cut out of us that old flesh, that old carnal nature, and replace that with spirit. But allow him to do the work. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's not. But the point is, is the word of God is cutting. And, and the sword, remember, it cuts both ways. Sometimes, and the, the danger is the, the, the Bible, when it cuts, there's blessing and sometimes there's cursing in people's lives. Uh, those who believe, to those who believe, salvation. To those who do not believe, damnation. This is serious stuff. And it's a result of the word of God cutting. Uh, passages that demonstrate this, I'll give you a passage on each. Blessing, John 6.63. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. We talked about that. Now, cursing, the same word. It says in John 12, 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Damnation. And so is the word of God important in our lives? It is of paramount importance in our lives. It is, it is God's words to us. And God does speak. He's talked about that. He's building this, this is part of him building the case. Don't refuse him who speaks. And he'll talk about it more as we go through Hebrews. These people were beginning to harden their hearts and hurting their hearts. They're not hearing God's voice. They're not hearing from him because they want their own way. We can fall into that, folks, and it's a danger. I'm not saying we're going to fall into that to perdition, to, to, to damnation. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that if you want to struggle, uh, I remember one time I had a guy that worked for me and I found out that his wife was having an affair. And I wanted to go to this guy and I, I mean, there was a whole deal. Uh, no, it wasn't him. It was, it wasn't his wife. It was, he was having an affair and I wanted to go to him. And I, so I talked to a pastor friend of mine and he said, you know what? Unless he's willing to hear that, you need to pray about the timing that goes into that whole deal. My point is, is that I could have gone off half cocked and gone and beat the guy up and hardened him in his position. What I ended up doing was waiting until God spoke to me that he was ready to hear what I had to say. That's a hard thing, folks. That's a hard thing. Do we confront sin? Yeah, we do. But not without a load of prayer that goes in. Not without understanding that, you know, what it says in Galatians chapter 6, he, he, in six one, he says, you who are spiritual, if a brother or a sister is caught in a trespass, not a sin, per se, not just something that they boofed, but we're talking about somebody who is in willful disobedience, somebody who is walking the other way. He says, you who are spiritual, go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Because when I talked to my friend, my pastor friend, and, and he was giving me counsel, I was just ticked off. I didn't like seeing what I was seeing. I didn't like finding out one of my employees was that out of line, you know, all of that stuff. 
And he was, he was cautioning me, wait until you who are spiritual go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness that you fall into the trap of the devil. What's the trap of the devil in that case? Going off half cocked and sinning in my effort to restore a sinning brother. How much sense does that make? The point is, it was the word of God coming to bear in my life. It was applying God's word in that moment. And, and through the counsel of a friend, a trusted friend, I was able to say, you know, I can make a case for going and talking to this guy, but my heart was off. And it wasn't until the Lord dealt with my heart that I was able to go and to successfully speak to my brother and win my brother and encourage him and exhort him and let him know that he needed to do some work with the Lord. And that it came out, it, it actually worked out. My point is, listen for God's word. He still speaks. He spoke to me through that. He spoke to me through a friend. But it was based in his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a great passage here, uh, verse 7 through 9. It says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew, for they, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But, I love this part, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The cutting things of God. That's not reckless. Um, the word of God, we see in uh, Second Timothy, when he talked about the word of God is inspired. It's God breathed. The, the rest of that passage, the second half of that passage, is that it's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That's how the word cuts. That's how God slices his word into our hearts. And we do well to heed that. Remember, it's not this. These metaphors only go so far because God is not wanting to cut us to bleed us out. Does his word cut? Oh, you bet it does. And, and, and those of you that have been walking with the Lord for a while know it. There are times here where I know that the word of God is cutting. I know that he is doing that divine surgery in people's lives. I, I've had people, and many times preachers hear, you know, how did you know about that thing going on in my life? I don't. But he does. And as we come and we avail ourselves to God's word here, and, and, and speaking forth God's word, my consistent prayer, folks, I prayed it this morning, is that your people, as I speak forth your word, your people will hear your voice and follow you. That's the work of the word of God. The fifth thing is the word is piercing. Well, it has an edge like a, a sword. It also has a point like a dagger. As I mentioned, these, the, the new warfare, I mean, the small swords, it's kind of like the difference between using a rifle and using a handgun. It was an advancement in warfare back in those days, 2000 years ago. They went, hey, we don't have to use these big old heavy swords. We can't get in there tight to do battle. Well, they came up with this one that would actually pierce armor. And that's why they pointed it like they did. It was an armor piercing knife. 
And in the word of God, he uses this metaphor on purpose. The, the, the word of God pierces like a pointed knife, like a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, this is what one guy says. He says, the difficulty with some men's hearts is to get at them. In fact, there is no spiritually penetrating the heart of any natural man except by this piercing instrument, the word of God. Into the very marrow of the man, the sacred truth will pass and find him out in a way in which he cannot even find out for himself. Isn't that good? That's the effect, the piercing effect of the word of God. The sixth thing that we see about this in in Hebrews 4.12 is that the word of God is discriminating. It divides. He says, in, that, in the same way that the rest for Israel was physical. Remember, they, we talked about the difference between the physical rest for Israel and the spiritual rest that the writer wants these first century Jewish Christians to enter into. Uh, the rest for the believers, is it's a spiritual rest. So too, this piercing is not that of a physical sword, but that of a spiritual sword as the word pierces, as it divides, as it brings life. A physical sword brings death. That was what it was designed for, was to get past that armor and kill the guy. Again, the metaphor falls apart at that point because this piercing brings life. This piercing goes to the very heart, the very center of someone's being. He talks about as far as soul and spirit, uh, the sword pierces the psyche. That's the word. The Bible word is psyche uh, when it talks about soul. And spirit is pneuma. Again, it's the same word for air. It's where we get pneumatic tool, air tools. They're, they're pneuma tools. And so when he talks about the soul, he's talking about man's relationship with himself. Uh, often defined, the soul is often defined as the mind, the will, and the emotions. And so it's the you, it's the, who you are. It's the inner person, the soul. And again, you could look at dichotomy, trichotomy, and those are fancy words for, is it body and then soul, spirit as one? And there are some people that interpret this as soul and spirit are the same. I believe that there's three, that there's the body, the soul, and the spirit. And that prior to conversion, the, the lusts of the flesh, the body appetites are on top. They were dominated by a flesh nature. And at conversion, when I give my life to Christ, he renews me. He, he actually brings life into me. He, because I'm walking dead until then, according to Ephesians 2. And, and there's a flip-flop. I am now led of the spirit. I have the ability to be led of the spirit. Does the body still there? Does it still call mine? Yeah, of course it does. But that's my lower nature now. So it's body, soul, and spirit. And so when we're talking about this, the soul is your you. It's who you are. Um, the spirit, that's the metaphysical part of who we are. And, and, and I don't, I'm not getting weird when I use that word. Meta means beyond and physical. It means beyond the physical. So the metaphysical Part of who we are is the part that's not physical, but our spirit. It's the Holy Spirit bearing witness to our spirit is how the work gets done. That's where the power to live comes from. It's not in my own puny power in my flesh, but as I am availing myself of the power that God brings, I have the power to live. We call it resurrection power. And that's there for a purpose. So uh, the spirit is man's relationship with God. As the soul is man's relationship with himself. It's supernatural. It's powerful. Uh, 
He talks about the joints and marrow here. He's, it, it, all that means, folks, is that the sword of the Spirit, this Word of God, when it goes out and it pierces, it goes to the very core of who we are. It doesn't stop at the bone. But it pierces even through the hard stuff, the hardness, and goes to the core, the marrow. That's where the life is. Uh, these guys didn't have the ability to know the processes involved in the human body that bone marrow does. I mean, that's where your blood cells come from. And it goes right to the core of who we are. Again, metaphorically, he's talking about this word of God piercing to the deepest part. And as we open ourselves and say, bread of heaven, feed my soul. That's what we're inviting God to do. We're inviting him for his word to pierce, to go to the very core. And Lord, I can't change myself, but you can change me. Won't you please change my heart? I prayed, you guys, when I was a younger man, I had a fiery temper. And I prayed for six years. Lord, I don't know why you haven't taken my temper away. It's a lousy witness. <laughs> I can walk into the room and my kids go, Pew! they're gone. You know, it's because I just, I was just, I had a fiery temper. I had a lot of rage when I was younger. And God, I prayed out of James, he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I mean, I never read that last verse in there. I just kept praying, Lord, I want to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And then I read that and it was like, and then one day I realized, and I didn't like get up and, and go, wow, he took my hand. I just realized I hadn't lost my temper with anyone in months. And I said, thank you, Lord. It was the word of God, the spirit of God working through the word of God in piercing my heart and going to the center of who I am. And experiencing deliverance from a really nasty thing in my life, I hated it. I got tired of apologizing to everybody too, but the point is it was a tough time as a young Christian uh, to know that that's something that I want God to work and I invite him to work. Did it bring death? No, it brought life. It brought a, a, a you know, I talk about, you know, you look at computer software, it's like, is that version 1.0 or 1.2? Well, John 2.0 was a whole lot better than John 1.0. And, and, and to God's, for God's glory, it was for Him doing the work, availing ourselves of the Word of God, having the effect in us that He wants it to have. He says it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, the thoughts being strong feelings, reason, desires, impulses, emotions. Uh, the intentions of the heart. Uh, it's insights, understanding, perceptions, wisdom. One may compare uh, the word for thoughts is enthumesis. And the word for intentions is anoia. One may compare enthumesis and anoia insofar as thought is an emotional part of man, while intention, anoia, is the intellectual part of man. It's as if he's saying, your emotional and intellectual life must alike be submitted to the very scrutiny of God. The last thing we have here is the word reveals. And the word of God reveals. It uncovers things. It uncovers things that I didn't know I had. It uncovers and he lays open things in our lives that sometimes we're shocked. Sometimes we go, wow, I didn't even realize I was hanging on to that thing, Lord. Uh, the emphasis in all of this is that the power of the word to penetrate and expose the inner heart of man. 
It's That's the word's intent. That's God's intent in using the word of God, the words of God, which become the word of God in our hearts. Because the word is a discerner. The word there is, is kritikos. And it's where we get the word critic or critique. And so if we were to allow the Bible to critique us more, that's what he's saying. The Bible is our critiquer. It critiques us. It, and it doesn't beat us up, but it says, I want that. Or sometimes the Lord has to pry my fingers off of a thing. But that's part of the function of the word of God. You see how the word that they heard didn't profit them. It wasn't united by faith. As we unite that word by faith, this is what we get. This is what happens. This is the process. This is the gears meshing together. This is what God does in us as we open ourselves up and say, you know what, Lord? I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Help me not walk in hardness of heart. Lord, help me to understand and to bear with people in in a different way, in a way that brings glory to you. Let my light so shine before men that they notice my good works and glorify my Father in heaven. That's the work of the Word of God. That's why we come down here. We don't just sit and watch some guy read a book. We come down here to open ourselves to the moving, the working of the Holy Spirit, to say, Lord, touch my heart. Lord, work in me. Not not my spouse, not the person next to me. You guys have heard me, I and I, I will warn you about that. Don't think you understand God's will for the person sitting next to you. Dangerous if you're married. <laughs> I'm kidding. But it can be, I mean, but understand God's will for you. Say, Lord, work in me. And yeah, I'll pray for my wife. I'll pray for my husband. There's nothing wrong with that. But but don't get onto this thing where you start understanding and thinking that you know what's best for that person because God's agenda might be something totally different. It's a personal relationship. And he has his agenda with us and he beckons us by faith to embrace that and to allow him to work. He won't violate your will, folks. But he wants to come in. He wants to allow his word to have the effect that he's designed it to have. And that's the transforming power that he brings in our lives by his spirit through his word. So verse four or chapter four, verse 12, I'll read it one more time. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even as to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and a discerner, a critiquer of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's cutting, it's piercing, it's discriminating, and it's revealing. As relates to what? The heart. It's all about the heart. He's saying, don't have a hard heart. Let me tell you how not to. Trust him, enter his rest, let him work, allow his word to come to you in a fresh way. I don't care how many times I've read the Bible. I've read the Bible a bunch of times over the last 30-some, 36 years of being a Christian. And there's always something new. Because that's how he's designed it. That's the work of the Word of God. That's why it's called the sword of the Spirit. 412 is a gem. It should be memorized. It has a broad application to the church. However, in context, it's a serious warning about the Word of God being dangerous dangerous to those who have not come to faith. It's the danger of falling short. 
Verse 13, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You can't hide. You know, we don't like being exposed. We don't like being vulnerable. That's why we have fences in our yards, locks on our doors, curtains, clothing. We don't like scrutiny. Um, my wife doesn't like my toenails. And I am shy around my wife having bare feet. My point is, I don't like being scrutinized. That's just a silly little thing. Now, you guys are going to put that in the category. None of you will give her anything orange because I said she doesn't like orange one time. And so, yeah, you, so you guys still get her anything but orange. But my point is, is that she doesn't like my toenails. And it bugs me. And we'll talk about it probably on the way home from church. But, <laughs> but the point is, the point is, we don't like being scrutinized, do we? What he's saying here is the word of God scrutinizes everything, seen and unseen, barefooted and with shoes on. God sees it all. And, and you can't hide from him. He's saying, and you know, we live in a world where there's, we want to hide from things. Here's the point. You are absolutely vulnerable in front of a holy God. And by his grace, he loves you. Not because you're all that wonderful, but because he is. Because he loves us to the point where he sent his son to die on that cross. That for any who would come, he would pour out his spirit upon, he would take up residence within, and that he would begin now to do that work of conforming us to the image of his son. A lifelong work. Everything is open and bare before him. You can't hide from him. He knows what my toenails look like. That's two. No, I'm kidding. But the point is, it's by his grace. You can't hide. He knows. And it's important to him that we know that he knows. I mean, that's the point of this. His word exposes and and everything in our lives. There's no creature hidden from him. Everything is open and bare. So cooperate. By his grace, he loves you. Cooperate with the work of his spirit. Cooperate as his word convicts, as his word has its desired effect, as it pierces, as it cuts, as it divides, as it separates, as it discerns and critiques. Cooperate. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. You're just so good to us. Knowing that everything is bare before you. Knowing that our lives are an open book, that there's nothing...